1: and welcome to Basic Folk where we have, that's right honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes. Thank you for joining us today. Very excited to get into our talk with Peter Mulvey a fan fave here at Basic Folk, me being the fan. Uh, before we get into it, let's talk about ways we can stay in touch. That's right. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter at basicfolk.com. You, uh, in order to stay in touch the best way, that would be it. The newsletter. You can also follow us on social media at Pod. And if you want to financially support the podcast, well, that's great. You can do that by going to our website, becoming a member. You can make a contribution at $5 a month or $60 for the entire year and get access to our bonus content, which is called Backstage. We have lots of of fun stuff happening back there, including friend hangs with our basic folk bestie, Lizzie No, as well as field recordings. It's just a whole barrel of laughs happening backstage. Okay, let's get into the episode today. Milwaukee-born Peter Mulvey has, along with classical duo Sista Strings, made an anti-fascist record. According to Peter, to make an anti-fascist record, you must keep kindness and compassion in the foreground. Love is the Only Thing goes from family, to politics, to family, to racism, and back to family. It's as optimistic and introspective as it is filled with running out a burning building type of songs. All the while, Peter is joined by powerful, thoughtful, and extremely talented musicians Monique and Shanti Ross. Lots has happened in Peter's life since his last album, fell in love and got married. A pandemic happened, and he's become a father. All of these eke their way into the songs on the new album. Particularly poignant is his co-writing with his partner, like the song about their possible future as parents. And good luck not crying to all the parents out there. Don't worry if you didn't catch all the Buddhist references. We talk about each one in finite detail. Hope you enjoy this conversation with one of my favorites, Peter Mulvey on Basic Folk. Peter Mulvey, thanks for being on Basic Folk.
0: Thank you, Cindy. Good Good to see you again. Good to hear your voice.
1: You made this album with Sister Strings violinist vocalist Shanti Ross along with drummer Nathan Keelan. So you, you met the Rosses in 2016 and there was this instant connection, but I can't find the origin story of where you met. So where did you meet and what was that connection like?
0: Uh, so. I met them at my brother's Unitarian Church and they had come to play in the church and, you know, they, they announced themselves the minute they start making music, you know, they're, they're <laughs> so uh, just, they're just the best. And so, you know, I, I no doubt went up and just sort of gushed at them and was uh, effusive and I'm sure everyone is, you know, and then. Uh, the the next time I saw them was just a few weeks later. They were playing as, uh, as accompanists with a guy named Mike Mangione, and he opened a show of mine in Wisconsin. And uh, that was the first time that they heard me play music, and I, I was knocked out at their ability to make Mike's music sound, uh, you know, just so much fuller and richer. And I wanted that to happen to my music. And so I asked them that they would play with me. And they said, sure. And that was it. We were off and running.
1: So how has the collaboration process with Sista Strings evolved?
0: Um, it's very natural. Uh, I mean, they, we, I just immediately felt an affinity with them. We don't really rehearse much. I just I play a song oh, wow. that, that I want us to play and then... They just sort of naturally fall into place. They're so good at that. Over the years, I've had time to figure out what it is that is so magical about them. And and one thing is that most classical musicians who are that technically advanced are not good improvisers and they're not good at sort of colloquial music forms. And similarly, most people who have swing and and sort of sway and chops and they're good at playing off the cuff, tend not to be that disciplined and focused and technically advanced, you know? So they're, they're such a complete package. And then more than that, they just always felt like family. Like, you know, mm. uh, the Cafe Carp is sort of my spiritual ground zero. And the minute they walked in the door, they just felt at home there, uh, even though they'd never been there. And, and they just sort of took up residence. Um, it, it just was a great fit. So I'm, I'm really, really lucky to have met them.
1: Yeah, uh, it's awesome to see them also performing with... Other like huge names. Holy smokes! You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Allison Russell, Brandy yeah, Carlisle.
0: Exactly. Allison Russell and Brandy Carlisle, and then the gigs, the trouble that they've gotten into with those two. Like, uh, they played at Elton John's you know annual fundraiser, and they've played the Grammys, and they've played the the Ryman and the Grand Ole Opry, and then they just played with Joni Mitchell. On stage with Joni Mitchell for the yeah. oh, it's been amazing watching them just rocket into the stratosphere.
1: <laughs> wow, that was uh, that was them playing the strings with Joni.
0: Yes, yeah, they were wow. on stage with Joni Mitchell for the for Joni's first set in 22 years.
1: <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay, Peter, are you ready to talk about your feelings? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So on the new album, you wrote a few of these songs with your partner. Um, What was it like to work with her in that capacity and how did it change your relationship?
0: Wow. So the the record is all about sort of the wider landscape of trouble. You know, like the trouble in our, our politics, watching our country sort of slide into autocracy and the pandemic and the sort of capitalist meat grinder that America is these days. And then juxtaposed with that is family and chosen family and the family of origin. And so the first song that my wife and I ever wrote together, she and I, at the time we were considering becoming parents and we have since become parents. that's a huge thing to think about in, you know, the way the landscape is in the world right now, with the, what with the climate, what with um, the turmoil in the world. And so a conversation like that, it requires a lot of silences and it required, apparently it required some oblique work you know we sat down just to see what it would sound like if we if we wrote together um she's she's always been an art an artist she's been a dancer and she's a painter and a she's just one of those people who is good at things um she's a babe Yeah, she really is. And it's disturbing how (laughs) it's disturbing how good she is at things like, you know, I've gotten whatever skill I have as a writer, I've gotten through just repetition the way that someone would hang drywall, you know, eventually it gets smooth. And this was the first song we ever sat down to write. And we, you know, I had like a little bit of music and then uh, she she came up with a few words and it was obvious to both of us in the first minute that we were talking about not just about, but specifically to our future potential child. And, you know, that moment just opened up and it it's full of vertigo and hope and fear. And it's kind of the beating heart of the record, that song, 500 Days it's called.
1: 500 Days, yeah.
0: Oh, you know. So it it raised my already fairly high estimation of her as a, as a babe. And, uh, also, (laughs) also, you know, that it it was such a leap of faith. And as it turns out, we did become parents and that has been, you know, now thinking of that song that it's so strange to send yourself a little letter into the future. I kind of can't wait for the kid to grow up and Oh, he probably won't be interested. He'll be like, Dad, that's that folk music.
1: (laughs) Well, you never know. You never know. Um, In your um, release about the album, it makes me want to know what's happening inside your brain. You said this album is basically a happy family song and then a song about how fucked up things are and then a family song and then a song about how fucked up things are. So, Peter, what is it like inside your brain when you're going back and forth between, like, the ultimate happiest time of your life to the darkest days of history?
0: Wow. I think that I have always, I've always had those two cameras going, you know, like a very, very wide-angle shot and a very narrow close-up shot. That's always been, that's kind of my shtick, I think, as a writer, (laughs) you know, Uh, and... I sometimes feel like you can only understand the wider context in the small details of being human. I remember standing in Anne Frank's house in, in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, in Otto Frank's house where, you know, the, the place where they hid in the attic and they had a little museum display there and It's all fairly, you know, obviously, we know the history of it. We know that she wound up in turn in a concentration camp and died there. But it didn't hit me until I saw a telegram that the SS had sent uh, requiring Anne Frank's little sister to report. And what suddenly made me come unglued was that the telegram included The list of items of clothing she was allowed to bring, you know, like she may bring three pairs of socks, three pairs of underwear, uh, one dress, you know, one nightgown. And it was that tiny little detail that made me. Uh, like my blood went cold and I, I thought of what it would be like to be a parent in that situation. And you're thinking, what do I need to do? Who do I need to bribe? Who do I need to kill? Where do I need to hide? What are the steps that I need to take? And so, uh, I, I mean, obviously we are not there yet, uh, but, <laughs> well, I mean, we are building tent cities on the border of our own country. You know, uh, we're in dark, dark times and, you know, we have politicians throwing around increases uh, for policing, you know, in this, the most peaceful era in all of our history. (laughs) You know, it's it's a frightening time. And I think the only way that we are going to get through is the way we've always gotten through these things, which is with with hope and, uh, with faith and with just little people doing little things, you know, uh, that's really where it all winds up. And, and man, I hope, I hope that this turns out well, but, uh, I feel like the ball's in the air right now. Like it's, we're (laughs) just, we're there, we're watching, we're watching large things teeter and they could go a number of ways. And I'm, I'm a little frightened.
1: (laughs) Hmm. All right, well let's get into this album. <laughs> um <laughs>
0: now, now that we're all doomed Ocean and no And your daughter away You roar and river My herb I would cross even these raging waters
1: The first song, Shenandoah, you wrote a brilliant track by track that was very helpful in me creating these questions. You wrote this epic description of the song. You said, nobody wrote this song and nobody has ever recorded it. It's hardly even a song. We offer our humble tributary, which took our whole lives to learn. So what is your history with this song and what does this particular recording of this song mean to you?
0: That, this song, I, I thought about singing Shenandoah for a good eight or ten years before I ever tried to do it. And, you know, it is, it's one of those strange, strange songs. It's got five lines to each verse. Uh, it's, it's, it's got an almost, um, I mean, it, it's almost got an ancient Greek uh, kind of structure to it in that regard or, you know, the things that Shakespeare was drawing on with uh, pentameter, you know. Um, so it's, it's a pretty magical and pretty potent bit of culture. And honestly, it was, what, what finally kind of opened a, a, a path into the territory of the song for me was two versions of it one uh Bill Frisell the guitar player um uh, he has this beautiful stately version of it on a on a record of his uh and then the other is uh Tom Waits singing it with Keith Richards and some men's mm-hmm. chorus uh, it's on some compilation somewhere and so those two versions sort of collided in my inner ear uh, and I used Waits's key, which is b flat and i used uh there's this sort of uh, Frizzell has this this combination of things which is sort of a halting and hushed and childlike majesty and so those elements somehow i i I feel like they they bounced off of my inner ear and then. Again, I feel guilty saying this, but at that point, all you really need to do is get yourself into a room with Shanti Ross and Monique LaDora Ross and, and Nathan Keelan and sit down and start playing. And everyone will fall in line pretty much behind Shanti and Monique, you know, and they will just Whoa. blaze yeah, yeah. the trail out <laughs> into the outer ether, you know, and you just go with them.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: Animal of my body wants the soft animal of yours. My despair wants to sit down quiet next to your
1: despair. Okay, the next song is Soft Animal, and of this song you say, I fell in love, that is all. You're naming <laughs> all these body parts, hair, hips, hands, ears, and also human parts like laughter and despair in the song. And it's such a unique way to look at the process of falling in love. So for you, what was it like to be able to break down a love like this? I'm
0: referencing uh, a Mary Oliver poem. Um, She wrote a poem called uh, The Wild Birds, and it begins, You do not need to be good. You do not need to walk on your knees for a, a thousand miles in the desert repenting. You only need to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And so that's that's where I got the two words, soft animal. But there's also a quote from George Bernard Shaw, which I kind of live by, which is that the soul is the body and the body is the soul. Uh, I I subscribe to that belief. So when you f- fall in love or when you grieve, you know, both of those things are accomplished through a native physical intelligence. Uh, and, and you just have to trust yourself. You know, you just
1: mm.
0: trust yourself. And of course, <laughs> all of us have fallen in love and had it go poorly. Uh, so, and, and yet you had to trust yourself, you know, that's Mm -hmm. how you got there. That's, that's how you knew it was going poorly. Like I I think about this all the time, the way that mm, only the poets really get to say it. Well, what is, there's a great Ted Kuzer line, all my life, I have been in the caboose while blind glands run the train you know like we're really along for the ride and if you get very lucky the animal that you are makes some choices that finally allow the sort of narrator who's perched up at the back of that train to go oh well this is good all right this is (laughs) this is finally working out Oh, my dear, what a little time has done to you. Oh, my dear, what a little time has done to you.
1: The next song is Oh, My Dear, The Demagogue, and three songs into the album, we have our first America song. Yeah. Uh, oh. This is a co-write with Paul Seabar. Yes. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. The narrator is wondering whether he and America belong in couples therapy or divorce court. So what conclusions does the narrator draw? And can you talk about how it's like for you to express your complicated feelings about America by using a divorce metaphor?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what happens when you build a country on the probably one of the best political ideas that has ever been conceived of that um, the govern that the government shall derive its power from the consent of the governed. That's astonishing. And then like in the exacts on the exact same piece of parchment is just straight up racist enslavement, you know um, so you have these two, Ideas and they're in the founding document, and one of them is breathtakingly beautiful, and the other is just useless. Like, nothing good can ever come from saying, Oh, well, some people aren't people, which is a, a sent, that's the precursor to slavery. And so, you know, we this country has almost divorced itself several times. I don't know, we're, we're in the midst of another one of these, you know, and it's been another one of these upheavals. And I don't know. I, I I really don't know. I was joking the other day, like if it goes the way I can imagine it going, and you know, um, the the they just toss out slates of electors and given states, and they install a president who didn't even win the electoral college, and people take to the streets, and there's some violence, and governors start heading for the exits. I, I was laughingly saying, I don't know. Maybe, you know, the Northeast can become the Republic of the Northeast and then join the European Union. And, you know, New, yeah. Hampshire, New Hampshire can like break away from the Northeast and then they can join the United Kingdom while like Northern Ireland yeah. and Scotland, like leave the United <laughs> oh. Kingdom and like.
1: <laughs> oh, New Hampshire.
0: Oh, it's gonna be a mess or not. I, I mean, there's a historian named Heather Cox Richardson and I read her newsletter every single day. And she's very calmly says, "This is the same argument Americans have been having forever and ever and ever. You know that mm. there's essentially a deep strain of of sort of elite corporatism and racism. Some people are better than others, and the better people deserve to rule and deserve all the you know the money and the power. And then there is a multi ethnic uh, democracy, an egalitarian democracy and." That's been the argument for 200 some years, and that will be the argument going forward. And I also, I take really great comfort as well in the fact that, you know what? Empires come and empires go. You know, the kids in Tiananmen Square, they were standing up for the same things that, you know, Mm. the, the Ukrainians right now, they are standing up to Putin for these things. And the Chechens were standing up to Putin. And, and, you know, the, the, the Syrians, in their case, it was a civil war. But still, I don't think people are going to give up on that central idea, even if, you know, my particular national mommy and daddy get a divorce and America falls apart. It doesn't matter, you know. People love each other and they're trying to work it out. Oh, my dear. Seagrams, old in of champagne, in the golf course clubhouse, in the sleet and the rain, and there's only one grocery store. The cannery is gone.
1: This next song, I'm going to set up this next song uh, Old Men Drinking Seagrams. It's a co write with John Statz, a portrait of a few American towns where the gloves are off. Um, the characters in this song sound pretty nasty, talking about picking on the queer kid and the Jews, and it's also mentioning the two black kids in town who are not having any fun. Mm. Um, and I don't know like, how this comparison falls with you, but I mean, I started listening, I was reading along to the lyrics, and I was like, this song really reminds me of Bruce Springsteen's Glory Days, but like, not sympathetic at all to the characters in glory days. Um, and there's one line that really strikes me where it's when you say, Lord, they're so afraid to lose, like, you know, behind all this nastiness and garbage is fear. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, uh, so John Stoss grew up in small town, Wisconsin, and I grew up in the inner city of a, of the largest city in Wisconsin, Milwaukee. But, you know, How do I say this? There is such an ugly strain to white American racism and I've lived alongside it my whole life. I I remember I worked at a, um, you know, I worked at a fast food joint when I was just a teenager and it was in my neighborhood, which was, which is a, was then and is now a largely black neighborhood. And um, one of the managers was from the white suburbs and, you know... Poverty and desperation are no fun to watch, and there's poverty and desperation in the neighborhood that I grew up in. It's a beautiful neighborhood, but there are stressed out people, and stressed out people don't always behave at their best. And so this suburban assistant manager at a fast food joint said to me, thinking that I would corroborate, um... He was like, man, they should just drop a bomb on everything between the river and 60th street and everything between Capitol drive and Wisconsin Avenue. And at the time, I think my response was something like, that's where I live. That's where my aunt Mary lives. Like I was so naive and so young that I, I actually thought saying to him, you know, I mean, white people live there too, might somehow get through to this dude. Mm. Right like yeah. it's where my name it's where everyone who works with us lives it's where i live it's where, like holy crap and so as the years have gone by i've become just less and less patient i think and more and more willing to just call bullshit on on views and so you know john i think john is just about as frustrated and so we basically sketched this little takedown of this song. And interestingly, I remember this. I, so I was living in Massachusetts when George Floyd uh, was killed in, in May of 2020 and watching all of the demonstrations. And of course, Shanti and Monique at that time, they were still living, they were still living in Milwaukee. And so they were out at a lot of those protests and Shanti just texted me, and said, I came home from this and I've just been listening to Old Men drinking Seagrams over and over, and I just, my God, that's it, you know? You just, you called it. That's how ugly it is. And I was like, "Yeah." well, you know, helper Whitey strikes again. You will never, ever
1: next song is called You and Everybody Else, John Sieg- Seeger. Yes. Co-write. So you write that this song is like all energy. Uh, can you talk about why that is so important here? Like you seem to be saying some pretty important things, but don't really get into like any of it like too deeply. So I'm wondering like if the tempo ties in with that.
0: That's exactly it, right? Um, th- I mean, if this song... If this song is a portrait of anything, it's a portrait of all of us just sitting at our computers, uh, uh, just drinking from a fire hose of information that we're not designed to process,
1: you know. Mm.
0: And so, like um, the beat, is <laughs> the beat of this tune is a little bit like banging your head on a wall in order to clear your mind. Uh, And there's almost no lyric, although the lyric says a lot, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and we got the Buddhist thing in there. I was real pleased with that. The hungry, hungry ghost is a Buddhist concept. So,
1: yeah. Can you explain the hungry ghost and then how it resonates with you? So the hungry
0: ghost is a sort of a Tibetan legend that one, if you are particularly um, greedy for sensation, uh, food or gluttony or, or, or. Really any of the, any of the human cravings, you run the risk of being reincarnated as a hungry ghost. And basically they're these sort of, they must have been high when they drew the, the, uh, pictures of them. They have these enormous bellies, like they're these great big bellies. And then they have this tiny little pin head with this teeny, teeny, tiny little mouth. Like they will never be satisfied because, because yeah. their craving is gigantic and their mouth is tiny. Uh, and so that's a particular version of Tibetan hell, and um, I guess in a way, God, I, I maybe the image just sort of struck me as being useful in this song because, like, all of us have had our the bellies of our minds inflated because we clamped our mouths around the the hose of the internet, and then we got like <laughs> blown up like a balloon. <laughs> see it with the kinds no matter how full up we saw behind the clouds there was always the sky
1: The next song has some more Buddhism in it. Uh, and I have a question about, like, one particular line. It's the early summer of 21. Mm. This is all about the two weeks where we thought the pandemic was over in 2021. I'm really <laughs> impressed that you wrote this in February of 2021, and the two weeks didn't come until months later. <laughs> um, but So here's the, the Buddhism I found in this song, um, where you said, No matter how full up with sorrow, behind the clouds there was always the sky. Yes. So... I find this thought to be very helpful and also very irritating. Um, you get this on meditation apps. You know, if you're feeling stormy, just go above the clouds and find the blue sky and blah, blah, blah. Um, but what is that practice doing here in this song? Like, is this a happy song or is it like kind of ominous? Like, what is happening here?
0: I think it, at, in the end it is a happy song. You know, it's for whatever it's worth that little window when we, you know, when we first had our first shot of vaccine, our second shot of vaccine, and, and we started just, it begi- we started hugging. Do you remember when we began hugging again? And it was like, oh my God, hugs. So, I, I mean, that is beautiful. And I, I just, on a personal level, I wanna say I completely agree with you that that particular Buddhist thought is so annoying. Mm. Um, I mean, it's super helpful because of course the nature of the mind is that the mind is the thing that perceives the sorrow. So your mind has never become sad any more than a mirror became the reflection of you with tears on, on your face. You know, a mirror is just a mirror. It just shows what you put into it. So, You know, that's all well and good, but my God, when I'm crying, I don't care. I want, I'm, I'm sort of swept away in it. Um, Yeah. And it, you know, that, that particular Buddhist teaching is only helpful in like, at the very least going, okay, well, this will pass, this will pass. And at some point I will (laughs) not be upset the way I'm upset right now. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Love
1: here. We talked about this song a little bit previously, 500 Days. It is the song that you and your partner wrote about the possibility of parenthood. Yeah. Um. So just to talk a little bit further, now that you are parents, what is it like to revisit this song?
0: I, it, it's a reminder. I think we got something very correct, which is that what... A child needs is to be met where they are. And so, of course, I'm worried about my son. I'm worried about his future. I'm worried about the future of the human race. I'm worried about his, his context as a human being and, and the world he's going to inherit. And those are all big thoughts, but he is not. You know, he pretty much views me as like a sentient chair That gives him a bottle and, and says, uh, you know, and makes, makes fun sounds (laughs) and sings at him (laughs) and like rocks him and, and also like brings him whatever the heck it is he wants. Like, you know, he points and I was glad after becoming a parent, the song kind of holds up. You know, it's about dogs and trees and the sky and buses and cities and feelings. And it's sort of like very, very close to the ground. And there are a couple of moments where it edges into talking sort of beyond the audience of the child. Like everyone, everyone tries to say what they mean and your heart's gonna break some days and your heart's gonna mend some days. And the heart goes on beating just the same. Those are very, very simple thoughts, but I think they sort of reach be you can say them to a child, and that they I think those thoughts reach beyond to uh, you know to those of us sitting on the other side of life. And a smile in the way that we harm and it's due when we see. A little baby hominid like you And you smile back with a look of joy Or indigestion and a shiver Straight down to my balls
1: The next song is On the Eve of the Inaugural. <laughs> what a word. Um right. This song is about filling up your gas tank while you're staring at your son the day before the Biden inauguration. It's like such a small moment with such a humongous historical moment at the same time. so why choose to express such a momentous occasion with like such a mundane task like what hit you in that small moment?
0: Uh, it's this it's that two camera juxtaposition, you know it's the sort of close reading and the distant reading like at, and at that point, of course, uh, he had not been born he was. He was an imagination at that point, you know, but I'm filling a gas tank and I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the innocence of children and, you know, and the inauguration of, oh, well, I, uh, I guess Joe Biden's going to fix everything. I think, I feel like we were all thinking that like, okay, thank God. We survived an actual assault on the actual capital of the United States of America, which has not been sacked since the War of Goddamn 1812. And boy, things are probably going to be just fine for you, little fella. I, yeah, I bet. I bet we fixed it all. You know, I, <laughs> like yeah. Um, and it it very much it verges out into the. Uh, you know, like, uh, what is what is the 80th straight decade? So 800 years, this planet has become less and less violent for the preceding 800 years. And so you would think that we should be very encouraged, but somehow we're not. Like, it's a worrisome mm. time, you know? And, and yeah, uh, I
1: mean- It might have something to do with the fire hose.
0: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> Now the better angels have fled the field And the people sway to a devil's song All the bitter seeds, they have come to fruit And common mercy deserts the
1: throng Pray for Rain was another co-write with your partner and mm. adversely this song seems like zoomed out and kind of hard to grasp at the largeness and I kind of had a hard time like coming up with something to talk about with this song so I kind of like copped out and just wanted to hear about how James Baldwin's work inspires you so I will say this like I find your work and your presence to be quite comforting in times of need whether it be like a personal strife or America or the Mm -hmm. world yeah um So how does James Baldwin's work do that for you?
0: Oh, my God. Well, the best way that I could put it is James Baldwin is the American conscience. He's about the best writer in terms of his ability to see this country with brutal clarity and to still doggedly love us. It's like reading George Orwell or Tanahashi Coates, except that he's more—he's just more loving. There's a there's mm. sort of a a ferocious, fierce warmth to him, and I, I've always loved that about Baldwin's writing. Mm. And he's he's almost funny at times, like not in the funny ha ha sense, but there's an almost giddy refusal. There's a refusal to give up his humanity basically he's just like i'm I'm not I'm not gonna do it I'm not gonna give in I'm not gonna hate you I'm not gonna do it so you know try someone else if you want if you want to make them hate you you've done a real good job I'm not gonna do it
1: <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I neglected to mention um that this song, you got the title from James Baldwin and you say about him in the writing of James Baldwin, we find both the aching, abiding love and searing of intelligence that are necessary if we come to terms with the United States of America, which is what you just reflected in your answer. But this song is very much inspired by James Baldwin's stuff. And I forgot to say it at the beginning. Oh, of it. and
0: actually, see, there it is. That was me sitting at a typewriter (laughs) and (laughs) typing thoughts instead of saying them out loud. I'm a little better when I slow myself down.
1: Close your eyes and reach for me
0: I don't get to know I don't get to know If I'm gonna see on the
1: other side okay, uh another co-write with your wife is see you on the other side Oh yeah, this is a song about being so far away from your parents during the pandemic, which I can relate to that. Um, you say that your partner grounded you in this moment. so how did she do that? Why do you think it worked?
0: <laughs> oh, she did it because she's she actually kind of shares her personality shares in common with James Baldwin's writing is that she's searingly honest, but very, very gentle, very tender. And so the way she did it was just to ask a question. I came downstairs, I was working on the song and I'd hit that touched on that nerve of realizing like, you know, I'm a thousand miles from my mother and father and I I love them And I, they're friends of mine and they're old and this pandemic is killing old people. So I had that really gut punch thought of, and I said to her, the last time I saw them might turn out to be the last time I saw them. And she looked up at me and she said, oh, love, does it help to know that this was always true? (laughs) Which is, they call her the, the fluffy white cloud of searing truth. Like... It is. It's always true. It's it's true of you and me now. Like I, I hope you and I live to be elderly people, but this might be the last time we speak. That's the those are the rules, you know? Yeah. A- and I've just the way that she delivered it allowed me to calm down and then we just finished the song because I was calm. But I'm gonna see you on the other side. All the way from Anchorage to Tucson, Persona you were rubbing the song muscles of my mind. Tombling through the jet stream, pitching, bowl and yaw
1: with $57 and a mood based left behind. The next song is February 2, which is a love song. It is very fun. Oh, good. Um The... Uh, lines that I liked the most were, we were married on a winter morning and on a summer afternoon. We'll get married anytime we want to. (laughs) And I love that. As someone who just got married, I'd like to keep getting married. Right? my wife. Yes. Yes. Uh, And then the chorus uh, is, I'll remember you if you'll remember me. When we're gone and there's nothing to remember, I'll remember you if you remember me. So can you talk more about how the act of remembering functions in this song?
0: Wow. Oh, that's real good. I mean, I am old enough to have seen finally that the past can change. That that is sort of the way out of a great deal of suffering. You know, I, I've, you know, this is my second marriage, and like a lot of people, I've When my first marriage ended, I felt as though I had failed. And I presume that my ex felt that way too. But as you go through life, you begin to understand that most memories are just you in the present telling yourself an approximation of things that you have recalled, you know, you called it again. And it's and it's come up from wherever it's quote stored, but you're you know you're rewriting it and you're rewriting it all the time, and I think that that's the path toward setting aside recrimination and setting aside guilt and then how does it function in this song uh the, what I like about that line, I'll remember you if you'll remember me when we're gone, and there's nothing to remember. Essentially saying that love, love is bigger than time. Love is bigger than time. It, it Love reaches further than time. You know, people, mm. people disappear and love doesn't. I don't have any proof for that. That seems like an assertion that's be unprovable, but I'd bet my life on it. I have bet my life on it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: And then one more question about this song. I noticed that you are singing in the upper register here. Yes. And in the the next song for Michael Brown, you're singing in your low voice. And the juxtaposition to me was like pretty noticeable. How do you use your vocal range to express emotion in songs?
0: I would say intuitively, you know, um, a lot of it has to do with, given keys have different colors. Low notes in general are darker to me than high notes. And then some keys are darker than others. And so I tend to juxtapose those things. So uh, what I would say about song for Michael Brown is it is very low on my register and that's dark, but the song is in the key of B, which is in at least in my mind, a fairly bright key. Um, and, you know, that seems like a good way in when dealing with the topic of Michael Brown, which is essentially, and we're back to Buddhism again, the song, uh song for Michael Brown, uh, begins with uh, extending compassion toward Michael Brown and then to his family, to his city, to his enemies, to the, the man who killed him. And then further out and further out and eventually to to the whole country, our whole sort of bleeding country. Um, all that is, is a, uh, they call it loving kindness meditation or meta meditation where you begin. Yeah, it's, it's a-
1: Sharon Salzberg.
0: Yes, exactly. Sharon Salzberg, who's kind of my spirit animal. Yes. Oh, she's so good. And that motion, that motion of beginning with very small compassion and then expanding it outwards. It's just, it's, it's useful because it's, you know, they say that you should proceed with an open heart, but then they don't give you any exercises for opening your heart. And then finally you find the Buddhists and they give you these mechanical exercises to help you open your heart. You know, Mm. I, I, I love them for their, just for how pragmatic the Buddhists are, you know? I feel like they're sort of, in the whole panoply of (laughs) religions, they're like the social workers. They're like, okay, well, let's get in there and help you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but man, sometimes they are too practical. They can just... Like, unrealistically practical sometimes. Like, there was... I think the one example I can come up with is, like, your uh, partner comes up to you and says... I'm leaving you for your best friend. Mm. And you say to them, I'm so happy for you. I hope you have a wonderful life. (laughs) I can't can't do
0: it. Yeah, I know. Sorry, guys. Oh, God, I know.
1: Uh, I'll see myself out. Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. At that point, the Buddha owes you 50 bucks.
1: (laughs) Yeah, at least. At Um, least. Yeah. And I uh, wanted to say something. Well, I'll take this part out, but I heard you say uh, spirit animal. Yeah. And I don't know if you've heard that that is kind of or totally that's like an offensive term to say <laughs> yes. to, for indigenous people. But I might offer kindred, spirit, or daemon right. as an alternative. Thank
0: you. Oh, no, you could leave that part in. As soon as I said it, I was like, ah, I said it. <laughs> That's the, you know, that's the thing of being a dinosaur. Like, I, I slip up all the time with pronouns. I'd you know, and and it's, I at least am smart enough to know that it is not their problem. It's my problem, you know? Mm. Like, but I, I I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like, I would casually say things all the time that in retrospect, you know, as we grow as a culture, one would feel uncomfortable realizing that what you're saying was bigoted or hurtful, but that's a small price to pay, that's the point. Like if I didn't feel like a dinosaur, it would be because our culture had not advanced. Right. That's, ah. that's the sign that it's all working, is that people in their 50s will start to feel like a sore thumb. I'm asking you to have some compassion
1: for young, dead Michael Brown. Let's move on to Song for Michael Brown. Um, so we're it, it's a song asking for compassion and you call this album an anti-fascist record. And in order to make an anti-fascist record, you have to keep kindness and compassion in the foreground. And I find like sometimes my compassion and my empathy is like waning for everyone. But what's, what's it like? like? How is your compassion? How is your empathy lately? And how did making this record and keeping it top of mind maybe change you in this way?
0: Hmm. I think we're in a very difficult Time because one of the tools of fascism, and we've seen it in play, is just rapid fire lying and lying about stuff that isn't important and saying outrageous stuff that they don't even believe. You know, like Matt Gates just said, um, "Oh, you know, isn't it ironic that the women who most want a- access to abortion are the ones that no one would want to have sex with anyway?" Like he's just saying it to make us all tired. It's it's uh, fascism is essentially just bullying, writ at the level of of yeah. of sort of governance. You know, uh, of the big power struggle. And it's designed to make you tired. You know, it's why Donald Trump lied about a weather map, you know, because because he wants you running around in circles being frustrated. And he wants to wear out your compassion and wear out your your uh, willingness to argue. And he wants to wear out your ability to believe that there is any such thing as truth. It's an instinct that all bullies have. And so i don't know that's why i made the record you know like just constantly trying to bolster my own compassion by going to the cafe carp which is a a joint full of people who are compassionate and Mm. hanging out with shanti and monique who you know come from a deeply compassionate family like they've told me some of their family stories and their mother is a is a an extraordinary human being who's done an extraordinary amount of forgiveness in her life just because she needed to, you know? And so that's, we cannot do this alone. I I think that's what it keeps coming down to like, and it's another reason to to stop drinking from the fire hose because it's the perfect (laughs) implement for these guys, you know? Like if you really Mm want to wear people out, Turbocharge your stuff and send it through social media. So, Yikes. yeah. Close it all down. Good God. <laughs> For young dead man.
1: Thank God you ended the album with uh, this Chuck Prophet song, Love is the Only Thing, written by Chuck and his co-conspirator, Kurt Klipschultz.
0: Klipschultz, yeah.
1: Klipschultz. You say, I love this song, they're right, love is the only thing, and Peter, you love it enough to cover it, name your album for it, so tell me why you love it and why it closes the record. I think
0: because it's such a strong song. It's got rock and roll swagger. It's got a sense of humor, um, and it and it says it all. And it says it all with heart and with moxie. Uh, you know, all you true believers, all you wide receivers, all you uh, all you American dreamers, all you gay deceivers. It's a movie, The Gay Deceivers. Look it up. Um, all you happy hookers, all you nightclub bookers, you know, it, it, it's I think I just needed to end the record on that much of a bear hug. And it's a tough song to sing. Like that chorus is full on rock and roll stuff. And luckily, we just got everyone to yell along. So
1: mm.
0: uh, and, uh, you know. I really love their writing, uh, and uh, I'm glad to have finally gotten one of their songs on a record. I've been covering Chuck's tunes and the ones he wrote with uh, Kurt as well for years and years. So it just felt like we needed to end this on a hopeful note.
1: Before we let you go, will you do the lightning round?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Got All right. My, got my running shoes on.
1: Okay. First song you learned on the guitar?
0: The theme from M.A.S.H.
1: What is your coffee order?
0: Uh, black coffee with a little bit of uh, oat milk.
1: Who is your first celebrity crush?
0: Linda Carter, Wonder Woman.
1: <laughs> <laughs> first album you bought with your own money?
0: The Police, Zenyatta Mandata.
1: That's a good one. All right. All uh, right. What was your first concert?
0: The Police uh, on the Synchronicity <laughs> Tour.
1: <laughs> Consistent. Uh, what is a book we all should read?
0: Giovanni's Room, James Baldwin.
1: Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. Last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Hmm.
0: I'm gonna say Connemara.
1: Donde está? <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, Connemara is in the west of Ireland.
1: Hmm. That tracks yeah. for you, Peter Mulvey. Oh, yeah. Well, excellent. This has <laughs> been a great interview. Neither one of us cried. Maybe uh, we secretly cried a little bit.
0: On the inside, where it counts.
1: On Yeah, exactly. Well, congratulations on the album, and thank you for taking the time to talk. Thank so you. Great so great to see you.
0: Thank you. Great to see you, too. Great to hear your voice.
1: This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Find us there, or you can search on the SiriusXM app by looking up Basic Folk. You can check out our website, basicfolk.com, or wherever you get podcasts. Talk to you next time. Bye.